Hello, and welcome to this FRDH First Rough Draft of History podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. In late 2015, with Donald Trump leading the early polls for the Republican presidential nomination, I convinced the BBC to let me make a documentary called Trump and the Politics of Paranoia. It framed Trump's surprising early success in challenging established Republicans for the nomination as the latest manifestation of that phenomenon identified by Richard Hofstadter as the paranoid style in American politics. During the course of the campaign, I made several documentaries on Trump's march towards the presidency. Each one left listeners in no doubt that there was a very good chance he would win. Having spotted Trump's prospects early, I became something of a prognosticator in the UK, and when asked what would happen now that Trump was president, I confidently predicted that he would be gone in two years. There were too many scandals and outright law-breaking that he was involved in. From the Watergate burglary till Nixon's resignation was a little over two years. I figured the time frame for an investigation into Trump and an unraveling of his presidency would take the same amount of time. I mean, the law works at its own speed. Well, I was wrong. What I hadn't reckoned on was what had happened to the Republican Party since the Nixon era. What follows is my latest documentary for the BBC. It uses news archive sound to trace how the party and its media wing have been fighting an incivil war against all opponents. Year zero of this war was 1994, when, led by Newt Gingrich, the Republicans regained control of the House of Representatives for the first time in 40 years. In civil war may sound like a figure of speech, something in the realm of the metaphorical, but it is not. The weapons may be words, but they are deployed in support of a radical reordering of American society. Please share this documentary widely. As I said, this is a long piece, so I won't be back after it's over, and I will give the commercial message now. Please visit the FRDH website, www.goldfarbpod.com, and make a donation to keep these podcasts coming. Thanks. Does America these days seem strange to you? Almost out of control, led by a president who is boorish and crude in his public statements, shamelessly vulgar, and who incites violence at his rallies. I drop a 25% tax on China. And, and, you know, I said to somebody that is really the messenger. The messenger is important. I could have one man say, we're going to tax you 25%. And I could say another... Listen, you motherfuckers. Wouldn't you love to see one of these NFL owners when somebody disrespects our flag to say, get that son of a bitch off the field right now. Out. He's fired. He's fired. Hey, when you're a star, they let you do it. You can do anything. Whatever you want. Grab him by the pussy. So if you see somebody getting ready to throw a tomato, knock the crap out of them, would you? Seriously. Okay? Just knock the hell. I promise you, I will pay for the legal fees. I promise. I promise. And it's not just Donald Trump. Congress seems to be interested only in partisan bickering. Bill Thomas did give that uh, apology yesterday on the House floor. He was choking back tears as he tried to explain 
why he called the police on, on Democrats last Friday. This crudeness is not a new phenomenon. A little over a decade ago, when Dick Cheney was vice president, he seemed gleeful about detonating an F-bomb on a Democratic senator. Did you really tell Senator Leahy, bleep yourself? I did. Any qualms or second thoughts or embarrassment? No, I thought he merited it at the time. Nothing comes out of nothing. America didn't just wake up one day with a president who talks like he's in a locker room and politicians who can't speak politely to one another. The long, incivil war in American political life has been going on for at least a quarter of a century. The BBC's Washington correspondent 25 years ago, Gavin Esler, expresses the general view of Washington watchers about when it began. The biggest change came with what was called then by the Republicans, the Republican revolutionaries of 1994, there was a degree of bitterness that I had never seen before. Of course, there were policy differences and there were ideological differences, but there was a real hatred for Clinton personally. And that went back some years. Uh, and there was an attempt not just to uh, thwart his policies or stop them or change direction, but actually to destroy the Clinton administration. In the midterm election of 1994, year zero for this epoch of U.S. history, for the first time in 40 years, the Republicans won the majority of seats in the House of Representatives. They had got there by ramping up partisanship to levels that hadn't been seen in decades and changing the rules about what was acceptable rhetoric in debate. 25 years on, former Congressman Vin Weber, a key player in the Republican Revolution, has no regrets about the sharp-elbowed campaigning tactics his party used to regain power. I think it's a democratic tradition, small-d democratic tradition. It, it certainly is, evidences uh, a healthy democracy in, in many ways. I understand, again, I come back to the point of if, if you don't if you didn't like the, the shattering of the old consensus, of course, you think this is a tragic development. But it really is democracy. It's how, it's how we give voice to our differences in, in a political society. And, and incivility is a bad thing. I don't like that. But I, I don't think that you just submerge your differences for the sake of, uh, of, of, of a rhetorical nicety. It truly was historic change. Decades of pent-up frustration were cut loose by Republicans as the new Speaker of the House was introduced. Mr. Clark, the Speaker-elect, Newt Gingrich, representative from Georgia and the Escort Committee. On that day, all the bipartisan rituals were observed as the Democrats' leader, Richard Gebhardt, handed over the Speaker's gavel to the House's new presiding officer. With faith and with friendship and the deepest respect, you are now my Speaker and let the great debate begin. I now have the high honor and distinct privilege to present to the House of Representatives our new speaker, the gentleman from Georgia, Newt Gingrich. Gingrich concluded his more than half-hour inaugural speech with hopeful words. If each of us will reach out prayerfully and try to genuinely understand the other, if we'll recognize that in this building we symbolize America writ small, that we have an obligation to talk with each other, 
then I think a year from now, we can look on the 104th Congress as a truly amazing institution. And without regard to party, without regard to ideology, we can say here, America comes to work. A year later, however, no one in America's government was at work. The government was shut down by Gingrich and the Republicans' refusal to compromise over the federal budget. For those who are part of Washington's permanent political scene, like Norman Ornstein, resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, a conservative think tank, and co-author of It's Even Worse Than It Looks, this came as no surprise. Newt Gingrich's arrival in the Speaker's chair was the end point of a 16-year campaign to change the way politics was practiced, says Ornstein. When uh, Newt Gingrich emerged in Congress with the 1978 election, he tried to tribalize the parties and get the public so disgusted with Washington and the ruling party that they would throw them out and say anything would be better than this. In 1978, the Democrats had been in control of the House of Representatives for 24 years. Gingrich felt Republicans were to blame for that dominance because they were too willing to work with the Democrats. Newt Gingrich turned down several requests to be interviewed for this program, but McKay Coppins recently spent quite a bit of time with him for a profile in The Atlantic magazine and explains that Gingrich saw himself first as a proselytizer of change for his own party. On June 24th, 1978, Newt Gingrich is running for Congress at this point, um, and he was speaking to a gathering of college Republicans at a Holiday Inn near the Atlanta airport. Um, and he's pretty young. He's 35 years old. Uh, he's a college professor. Um, and, and he stands up to speak, and uh, and he kind of delivers this really remarkable message to the, the young activists that were there. He says... One of the great problems we have in the Republican Party is that we don't encourage you to be nasty. We encourage you to be neat, obedient, and loyal, and faithful, and all those Boy Scout words, which could be great around the campfire but are lousy in politics. Once in Congress, Gingrich became a one-man ideological instructor, lecturing, sending audio tapes to prospective Republican candidates, teaching them literally to talk like Newt, and use his selected vocabulary. Betray, bizarre, decay, anti-flag, anti-family, uh, unpatriotic, pathetic, lie, cheat, radical, sick, traitors, the kinds of things that you say about uh, enemies who are trying to destroy your way of life, not about, as we used to have it, honorable people on the other side who may view the world and the way to solve problems in a different way, but we all agree on the problems and we can work together. Norman Ornstein says that language changed the game of politics. And those words, which are used more and more frequently now, moved us from simple ideological polarization and people sorting themselves out into a party that was more uh, conservative and another that was a little bit more liberal uh, into tribal entities um, that started in Washington and metastasized out to our states and to the public as a whole, where you view people on the other side of the aisle as the enemy trying to destroy your way of life. Gingrich's approach was not an overnight success. Washington, when he arrived, 1979, was a very different place. 
Democrat Tom Daschle was elected to the House of Representatives the same year. He would go on to the Senate and rise to Senate Majority Leader. Daschle recalls there were well-established rules about speech in the House. And that was called linguistic lubrication. That is, uh, you tried to lubricate your rhetoric in a way that uh, was not personal, and that was a well-established rule. But beyond the customs and manners inside the Capitol building, there were other ways to lubricate the process of legislating. There was a great deal of, of socializing at the time, too, that doesn't exist today. Back in those days, members of Congress moved their families to Washington. That was a given. You moved your family, you became incorporated within the, within the, uh, the new environment here in Washington. Um, members of Congress carpooled together Republicans and Democrats, famously in some cases, spent years carpooling together, riding into work and going back. Leadership would have uh, afternoon cocktails and bring in Republicans and Democrats. Tip O'Neill and Bob Michael, the Republican leader, would golf together occasionally. So there was a great deal more socializing. None of that exists today. All is gone. Uh, over 50 members of Congress now sleep on their sofas, I'm told. Uh, and uh, virtually no one, no one moves their family to Washington. So there's very little socializing. People leave on Thursdays, they come back on Tuesdays, and we try to run the country of the United States in Congress on Wednesdays. You can't run a country this complicated one and a half or two days a week. The reason for this is simple, permanent campaigning. The House of Representatives is elected every two years, along with one-third of the Senate. The American Enterprise Institute's Norman Ornstein. You know, when I came to Washington, uh, you had about 18 months of the two-year period that were a governing season when people focused on uh, legislating and problem solving. And then six months out of every two years, they would uh, campaign. And the people who worked in the campaigns, the uh, pollsters and the campaign consultants would be there for the six months. And then they leave and go back and do work in the private sector for 18 months before coming back. But over time, it's become all campaigning all the time. Uh, we're starting to see this phenomenon in Britain and elsewhere as well. You know, you can have that very brief formal election period. But now uh, campaigns through mass media, through the uh, nature of modern technology and social media, there really are campaigns going on all the time. And when we moved as well to an era where the uh, elections were highly competitive in the sense of who could win a majority in the House or the Senate or win the White House, working with the other side became a little bit like sleeping with the enemy. You might give them some traction that would help. Those things filtered in, uh, and they were there uh, and beginning, really, in the early 1970s. So Gingrich was elected to the House of Representatives as the tectonic plates were shifting. But before the future Speaker of the House got national notice, it would take three electoral cycles and a major media change. Then we got televised debate through C-SPAN. C-SPAN is a nonprofit video service set up by America's cable TV companies. It televises all congressional and most senior government activities. And what Newt Gingrich realized is that there was a significant enough audience out there that he could take some of his members, go onto the floor when nobody else was there, and in particular, no Democrat would show up. They had other things they were doing, and there weren't any votes that were going to take place. 
And the C-SPAN cameras were trained to focus only on the people speaking, not on the larger chamber. Uh, the, the House had mandated this because there are so many times when almost nobody's on the floor uh, and you didn't want it to look as if they weren't paying attention to what their members were saying. And they would organize these colloquies where they would accuse Democrats of all kinds of horrific things and have a discussion back and forth, and nobody would respond to them. So it appeared to the viewers as if uh, the Democrats were just conceding all of this. At the close of business every day, the House of Representatives has time for what are called special orders. Members read speeches that are transcribed into the congressional record, America's Hansard. Gingrich understood that special orders, which were televised, could be used to call attention to issues to C-SPAN's niche but influential audience. What he did in particular was to focus on Central America and the Contras, the left-wing groups that were uh, trying to overthrow governments in Nicaragua and elsewhere. And Gingrich and his friends would go on the floor and they would fundamentally accuse the Democrats of treason, uh, of trying to undermine uh, American foreign policy for their own uh, crazy ideological purposes to uh, bring communism to our uh, hemisphere. Every time a communist movement battles an authoritarian U.S. ally, Democrats with radical views believe the promises of the movement. Every time a communist movement takes power, Democratic congressmen say it will be fair, progressive, enlightened. Every time it's not, the blame goes to the United States or the particular country's history. Every time a communist government declares for the export of its system, we're not supposed to pay attention to what's being promised. Every time a communist government commits an atrocity, Western memories are to be short and tempers long. Gingrich kept reading these speeches to the empty chamber for a while, naming specific Democrats, and as they weren't actually there, they had no opportunity to challenge him. Democrat Tip O'Neill, a legendary figure, was Speaker of the House. The Speaker is the presiding officer of the body, and as in Parliament, he or she sits in a high-backed chair on a dais and tries to maintain order and an even-handed flow of debate. But the Speaker of the House is more powerful than the Speaker of Parliament. He or she is second in the line of succession to the presidency. If a president dies or resigns, the position is taken by the vice president, and if the vice president meets similar misfortune, the speaker is elevated to the presidency, even if from a different political party. It is rare for the speaker to leave his chair and go to the floor and speak, but on May 15, 1984, Tip O'Neill had had enough of this young loudmouth and gave up the chair, went down on the floor of the House to give Gingrich a piece of his mind. My personal opinion is this. You deliberately stood in that well before an emptied house and challenged these people, and you challenged their Americanism. And it's the lowest thing that I've ever seen in my 32 years in Congress. And that is a no-no under the rules of the House. You can't malign another member directly. He was called out for it. Mr. Speaker, I move that we take the Speaker's words down. O'Neill's words were taken down, a form of censure, and he was banned from speaking in the House for 24 hours. But that wasn't the end of the debate. Gingrich wasn't reading his screeds to an empty chamber now. He had a full house, and standing at the lectern, he reveled in the spotlight. Let me just say before I yield, if you think for just a moment of what in a moment of passion our very distinguished speaker said a few moments ago, 
If you think of what in a moment of passion the other night our distinguished colleague from Wisconsin said, in many ways, it is my patriotism being impugned. I am as sincerely committed to the survival of this country, Mr. Speaker, as you are. I am as sincerely committed as Mr. Wright. I'm questioning the gentleman's patriotism. I'm questioning his judgment. That's very I also reasonable. question I, I the yield, judgment of the chair. I was expressing my opinion. As a matter of fact, I was expressing my opinion very mildly, because I think much worse than what I said. I'll be glad to hear This was about more than just scoring points. This was fear of a bad moment in post-war history being revived. From New York City, you're about to hear an address by Joseph R. McCarthy, United States Senator from Wisconsin and Chairman of the United States Senate Permanent Subcommittee on Investigations, Senator McCarthy. It was a mere 30 years since Senator Joseph McCarthy had ruined lives and reputations, impugning the patriotism of opponents by accusing them of being soft on communism. This fear has been engendered and nurtured not only by the communists, but also by the phony, deluded, fuzzy-minded liberals in whose book it is a mortal sin ever to expose or criticize a communist. Congress had moved past the McCarthy witch hunts and entered an era of bipartisan cooperation. Gingrich seemed to be dragging things backward. That was not his intention, says Vin Weber, a close colleague who was on the floor of the House that night. The speaker, I remember the confrontation, the speaker did not understand what it was we were trying to do. He thought we were dishonestly trying to convey to the country that we were challenging people who were sitting in front of us and who declined to respond. And that's not what we were trying to do. We were trying to make the point that we couldn't get a debate started on these issues. David Obey, a Democrat from Wisconsin, McCarthy's home state, threw Gingrich's words back at him from the congressional record. You have uh, Mr. Gingrich saying, among other things, uh, once a communist regime is in, these Democrats give it unlimited sway to get even with history. Four paragraphs later, you say, every time a communist movement battles an, author- an authoritarian U.S. ally, Democrats with radical views believe the promises of the movement. Then you go on to describe which members of the House in, the, in subsequent pages you view as being radical, including myself. Gingrich now had the debate he wanted, and it was not far off McCarthy. He accused the entire left of always making excuses for tyrants. No matter what Stalin did, no matter what happened under, under later regimes, somehow it was always explainable. Now, Are you that suggesting is a that that applies fact. to members on this floor? Regular order, Mr. Speaker. It is a historical fact that the intellectual left in the Western world... Does that include members on this floor? Would the gentleman care to allow me to have my time as the rules provide? If the gentleman wants to discuss it, yes. If the gentleman wants to filibuster for five minutes, no. The ill will generated by this discussion was enormous, but for Gingrich that didn't matter. What mattered was that he was the subject of a piece in the Washington Post the next day by correspondent T.R. Reed. Smoldering partisan anger burst into rhetorical fire on the floor of the House of Representatives yesterday in a free-swinging three-hour debate that peaked when the Speaker of the House lost his temper and was officially ruled out of order. 
the raucous exchanges between Democrats and Republicans, laced with charges of McCarthyism on both sides, left the House fiercely polarized and probably diminished chances for bipartisan agreements on spending and foreign policy issues. The article ended by noting that Gingrich received an ovation from all his fellow Republicans, except the Republican leader in the House of Representatives, Robert Michael, a veteran of the old bipartisan ways. A decade later, following the 1994 midterm elections, Gingrich replaced Michael as leader and thus became Speaker of the House. Gingrich represented both generational change and a changed America. Ronald Reagan's election in 1980 represented a decisive break with the Roosevelt New Deal social contract. The federal government was no longer seen as a solution to problems, but the problem itself. Deregulation was the order of the decade. In 1987, the Federal Communications Commission, which licensed American television and radio stations, revoked one of its set of regulations, the Fairness Doctrine. The Fairness Doctrine had been put in place in 1949 at the dawn of the television age. It required broadcast license holders to present controversial views on politics and other areas of public interest in an honest, equitable, and balanced fashion. Both sides of a controversial topic were to be aired, and aired dispassionately. There were also rules about personal attacks. That same year, 1987, Rush Limbaugh was the host of a midday call-in show on station KFBK in Sacramento, California. Limbaugh shared Gingrich's politics and the Georgia congressman's love of baiting liberals. A year later, completely unleashed by the Fairness Doctrine's repeal, Limbaugh had been recruited by ABC Radio Network moved to its headquarters in New York, and was nationally syndicated. By the early 90s, his show was on hundreds of stations every day at noon. Rush rooms sprang up around the country, restaurants and bars that played the show for the lunch trade. Clearly, there was money and votes in talking about politics publicly the way Gingrich and Limbaugh did. Soon there were hundreds of Limbaugh imitators on radio stations around the country, their voices filling commuters' cars with shouting about democratic perfidy and the world making suckers of Americans. In 1993, on my first extended trip back to the U.S. after moving to Britain, I was so stunned listening to right-wing ranter Bob Quessel, I had to pull off the interstate ring road round Indianapolis and record him off the radio. I really couldn't believe it. It was a few days after an American helicopter was shot down over Mogadishu. I'm so angry with seeing this man's body being dragged, especially since he's an American. I want to go up there and I want to kick ass. Well, pardon, pardon me, but I just have to say that. I want to go up there and I want to beat these people so bad, I don't want to see a deed alive. I really don't. They're letting the world get the impression that America's nothing but a bunch of wimps and we're pansies and we're afraid to go in and do the stinking job. Let's get the damn job done! But Quessel couldn't touch the master, Rush Limbaugh. Day 254 of the raw deal for the middle class. Day 273 for the rich and dead. 1,206 days uh, remain in this travesty, in this assault on capitalism. 
1,206 days remain in the most brazen, blatant, open attempt at socialism this country has ever known. Hello, my friends, and how are you? By 1993, Limbaugh had become the leader of the airwaves opposition to the newly elected Democratic president, Bill Clinton, who had put his wife, Hillary, in charge of what he hoped would be his signature accomplishment, reforming America's expensive and inefficient health care system. From today forward, Hillary's husband. Hillary's husband was in New York on Sunday night. He made this speech and he castigated whites for not voting for blacks. We have demonstrated that it's blacks who don't vote for whites. But a critical reason for Limbaugh's success was high production values and the fact that he was very funny. What follows, ladies and gentlemen, is a two-parter. A, a reestablishment of what I call the Clinton hustle. This, my friends, is how it's done. Do it. The Clinton hustle. How we end up accepting socialism without nary a question. When I go through this again, you will have heard it. Remember having heard it. But I need to remind you one more time with tapes rolling, a program for the archives, the Clinton Hustle. This is how it is done. First off, ladies and gentlemen, we have the establishment of the crisis. Days and days of hand-wringing on TV. Absurd figures, numbers that are never explained nor backed up to exaggerate the crisis and to incite fear. Then, the emotional soap opera anecdotes, government by sob story, the whining of America to touch your heart. Then the trial balloons are... Limbaugh's reach exceeded that of the mainstream news media, but it was not an independent voice. Shortly before the 1994 midterm elections, Texas Republican Tom DeLay bragged at the Conservative Political Action Committee meeting. For instance, we have well over 500 radio talk shows that we have on a list we're in contact with every week on, on one issue or another. And we uh, recruit volunteer Republicans to appear on these radio talk shows. And uh, the radio talk show gets all the credit uh, for uh, the, the conservative uh, bent of the issue. Uh, we don't. But our message is still getting out there. We fax Rush Limbaugh almost 24 hours a day. Where do you think he gets half of the stuff that he puts on the radio program? By the time of the 1994 midterms, much of America was primed to throw the liberals out after 40 years in charge of the House. And they did. A month later, the new majority met for an orientation session. C-SPAN broadcast the event live. Next, live coverage of radio talk show host Rush Limbaugh's speech to the Republican Freshman Orientation Conference. Since Thursday, newly elected Republican lawmakers have been meeting in Baltimore to discuss a wide range of issues they'll confront as freshman members of Congress. There was praise for Limbaugh. Talk radio with you in the lead is what turned the tide, Rush, and we know that. In fact, Rush, you know America. You were right in predicting that the American people would liberate Capitol Hill. The establishment media was wrong. They still don't know where the American people are, and we as a class thank you very much. 
there was a presentation. And we, as the freshman class, would like to nominate and make Rush Limbaugh an honorary member of our freshman class and present to him today a pin that all the freshmen got called the majority maker because surely he helped us become the majority. Then there was his speech. One of the questions I was asked as the, as the reporters were, were peppering me was, uh, do you think Newt will uh, moderate his uh, stance now that he's the Speaker of the House? And I said, better not. <laughs> and, I and Rush offered this advice to the new arrivals. You're coming into the Beltway, inside the Beltway. And as we're all human beings, and we all are susceptible to human nature, and we all want to be liked, we all want to be loved, and you all want to live in surroundings which are not hostile. But inside the Beltway, for people like us, this is not possible. And so sometimes, to avoid the hostility, we say things, and then begin to do things designed to gain the approval of those who are hostile toward us. I want to warn you against it. I want to warn you, you will never, ever be their friends. They don't want to be your friends. So despite all the bipartisan rituals being observed when the Speaker's gavel was handed over to Gingrich a few weeks later, America's government was on a fast track to shutdown. The Republican revolutionaries wanted to rebalance political power in Washington. Since Franklin Roosevelt's time, the power of the president had been growing and was now paramount. Vin Weber recalls the idea was to make Congress the center of decision-making. Taking control of the House of Representatives, which ultimately, as we know, remained in Democrat hands for 40 years, taking control of the House of Representatives was essential to being able to change the direction of the country in the way that we wanted to. The Republicans wanted to reverse much of the New Deal, make government smaller and cut taxes. And so when it came time to agree the annual federal budget, the Republicans decided to be inflexible and not fund the government until they got significant cuts in social welfare programs. The government shut down. Well, that was very intense. I'll never forget. It lasted 21 days. Uh, Former Senate Majority Leader Tom Daschle. There was a great deal of, of anxiety, frustration, anger, that we were having to do this, embarrassment. You know, when people talk about how dysfunctional Washington is, this is usually the first example people cite. In the American Constitution, the power of the purse is vested in the House of Representatives. The custom is the president presents a budget request, but it's the House that decides what to include and how it should be paid for. The Senate produces its own figures and then reconciles its numbers with the House. Gingrich, with his compromises, capitulation, worldview, blocked Clinton's budget. The funding for the government ran out, and negotiations commenced at the White House with Clinton, Vice President Al Gore, and Tom Daschle, now the Senate Majority Leader, negotiating with Gingrich and his Republican colleague, Senate Majority Leader Bob Dole. Things got heated. There were times when, when Newt in particular saw fit to show his emotions and stomp out, but that was temporary. He would come back uh, shortly thereafter, hour or two afterwards. And I remember at one point uh, we watched a movie and the president made popcorn in the Oval Office while we waited for Newt and Bob to come back into the room. 
Throughout this period, there were noises off from the right-wing talk radio hosts. After three weeks, a compromise budget was reached. For Daschle, it was clear the paradigm had been shifted. A lot of us were born shortly after or even during World War II, and there was this sense you rose to the occasion. There was a belief in, in, in just coming together, as the American people oftentimes do at times of crisis. And uh, this was just the antithesis of that. Former BBC correspondent Gavin Essler saw the effect of the shutdown shenanigans reflected around the country. I wrote a book called The United States of Anger in the 1990s, and the reason I wrote it was because every metric I could think of about America was good. You know, it was the unipolar world, the one last superpower. The Soviet Union had collapsed or was on its last legs uh, the, uh, from the late 80s through to 2000. Everything looked good, from hip-hop to Hollywood, American music and culture and ideas had transformed the world. Democracy was on the march, and yet everywhere I went, and I went to 48 of the American states, there was uh, anger, a, a really profound anger that somehow this country has gone on the wrong track. That anger was uh, whipped up by the kind of bile that there was in Congress. Not just that you're wrong, not just that I disagree with you, but actually I despise you. I despise you personally. I despise what you stand for. When asked about his confrontational style and incivil rhetoric, Gingrich, a former college history professor, had a stock answer. It was nothing compared to the kind of partisan speech the Founding Fathers of America indulged in. And he had a point. Joanne Freeman, professor of history at Yale University and author of The Field of Blood, Violence in Congress and the Road to Civil War, is a specialist in the harsh rhetoric of American politics in its early days. In those first 10 years under the Constitution, at the time, people assumed that this form of government that they were launching, a, a small-r Republican form of government, was experimental. It, it was in a world of monarchies. And for that reason, because people weren't entirely sure if it would work or how it would work, politics was really fraught. I call it a crisis mentality because you had people who truly assumed that one stupid decision or one poor choice and the entire experiment could collapse. And if you truly believe that to be true, then it's going to really unleash a certain level of political anger and extreme behavior. And in the 1790s, and especially the late 1790s, there was a lot of angry language, nasty broadsides, uh, and some violence. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. It's the Ten Dual Commandments. It's the Ten Dual Commandments. Number one. The challenge demands satisfaction. If they apologize, no need for further action. Number two. If they don't the rhetoric at the beginning of America's existence was full of fighting words. When John Adams and Thomas Jefferson faced off in the presidential election of 1800, a pro-Jefferson newspaper wrote, John Adams has a hideous hermaphroditical character, which has neither the force and firmness of a man nor the gentleness and sensibility of a woman. An Adams-supporting newspaper wrote of Jefferson, Thomas Jefferson is a mean-spirited, low-lived fellow the son of a half-breed Indian squaw sired by a Virginia mulatto father. 
But as rough as that language was, there were still rules, says Professor Joanne Freeman. There were certain words that were off limits. Um, so, and obviously liar and coward were two of them. Um, so, so were scoundrel, rascal, and puppy. <laughs> None of those were words that you wanted to utter uh, in relation to somebody else. But sometimes you could even spark a problem by calling someone an unprincipled politician. On at least one occasion, that got someone so upset that he responded by saying, well, you're a liar. And they were moving towards a duel in no time before they were negotiated out of it. So um, liar and coward, I think, by modern standards, certainly you can feel the depth of that insult. The others really, by modern standards, don't have that much zing, but they, they really give you a sense of how carefully these men were protecting their reputation, particularly as public figures in an age when you didn't have anonymous politicians. Politician wasn't even really a job in this period. It was men of a certain standing who stood for office or were put up for office by their friends. All of that depended on reputation, so they were very careful about it. Men guarded their reputations, if not in the cannon's mouth, then on the field of honor. No one was more attuned to insult than the illegitimate self-made man, now famous globally because of a musical, Alexander Hamilton. Alexander, can we agree the duels are dumb and immature? Sure. But your man has to answer for his words, Burr. With his life? We both know that's absurd, sir. Hang on, how many men died because Lee was inexperienced and ruinous? Okay, so we're doing this. Number nine! Look him in the eye, ain't no higher. Summon all the courage you require. Count! One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Number ten, paces, fire! He's the, the most consistently aggressive in the sense that, um at least 10 times before his final duel with Aaron Burr in 1804, he became near to fighting a duel. And Hamilton wasn't above entering difficult budget negotiations. He was America's first Treasury Secretary, with a second by his side. In the late 1790s, future President James Monroe and Alexander Hamilton almost ended up fighting a duel. And uh, because they each knew that this conversation they were about to have with each other <laughs> might go south, um, they both had seconds on hand, and the seconds recorded the conversation. Colonel Monroe then observed if he, Colonel Hamilton, wished him to give a relation of the facts and circumstances individually as they appeared to him, he would do it then. Colonel Hamilton said he should like to hear it. Colonel Monroe then proceeded upon a history of the business. Colonel Hamilton said your representation is totally false, upon which the gentlemen both instantly rose. Colonel Monroe rising first and saying, Do you say I represented falsely? You are a scoundrel. Colonel Hamilton said, I will meet you like a gentleman. Colonel Monroe said, I am ready. Get your pistols. Mr. Church and myself, rising at the same moment, put ourselves between them. Mr. Church repeating, Gentlemen, gentlemen, be moderate, or some such word to appease them. We all sat down, and the two gentlemen, Colonel Monroe and Colonel Hamilton, soon got moderate. 
I observed, however, very clearly to my mind, that Colonel Hamilton appeared extremely agitated, and Colonel Monroe appeared soon to get quite cool. Uncivil behavior in public life was almost a norm during the United States' first 70 years of existence. Andrew Jackson killed a man in a duel over a point of honor before becoming president. As the country marched toward its inevitable civil war over slavery, it was politicians who demonstrated where the country was heading. In uh, 1858, there is an overnight or certainly a late-night session going on in Congress, and those tend to be bad moments when it comes to violence. Somehow those always tend to be violent, or almost always. And in this case, again, they're, in one way or another, they're debating slavery. There is a Pennsylvania anti-slavery Republican congressman who happens to be standing amidst a bunch of Southerners when he objects to something. And a South Carolinian doesn't like the idea that this Northern anti-slavery fellow is standing in the midst of Southerners and objecting to anything. So he says out loud, go object on your own side of the house. And this fellow, is, he has this wonderful 19th century name, Galusha Grow. Uh, Galusha Grow of Pennsylvania says, I don't have to listen to some slave driver. I can stand wherever I want. This is a free house. Obviously, this does not make the South Carolinian, whose name is Lawrence Kitt, very happy. So he storms over to Grow and grabs him by the collar, prepared to throw a punch. But as he pulls his arm back, Grow beats him to it and punches Kit, who is flattened. He knocks him flat. Now, what's fascinating about that moment is immediately a swarm of Southerners who sees that a northern anti-slavery congressman has knocked flat a Southerner come streaming across the House of Representatives, all trying to get to the spot, some of them probably trying to break it up, most of them probably trying to join in. And upon seeing that, a bunch of northerners, a bunch of Republican congressmen, start doing the same thing. They rush. They're actually literally stepping over desks and chairs with their fists clenched to get to the point of conflict to defend their fellow. And you end up with a massive brawl with scores of congressmen, some of them armed, on the floor of the House of Representatives in front of the speaker's platform. But the most notorious incident took place when Massachusetts Senator Charles Sumner, a committed abolitionist, verbally attacked slave owners who wanted to extend slavery into the Kansas Territory. The senator from South Carolina has read many books of chivalry and believes himself a chivalrous knight with sentiments of honor and courage. Of course, he has chosen a mistress to whom he has made his vows, and who, though ugly to others, is always lovely to him, though polluted in the sight of the world, is chaste in his sight. I mean the harlot slavery. For her, his tongue is always profuse in words. The next night, Charles Brooks, a relative of the senator from South Carolina Sumner was referring to, went onto the floor of the Senate and with a walking cane very nearly beat the abolitionist to death. Caning is what you do with someone who's not worth dueling who has insulted you. So that was, everyone at the time would have understood that was a ritualistic kind of insult back. There are no parallels between then and now, are there? There aren't fistfights and canings in Congress, but the intransigence and inability to find common ground is profound, and this thwarts reform and progress. 
In 2009, Barack Obama was inaugurated president and immediately went to work fulfilling his key campaign pledge, reforming America's health care system so that the more than 30 million people who had no health insurance and thus no cover could be brought into the system. Tom Daschle worked on the launch of the legislation with President Obama. He was encouraged to to be supportive of a single-payer system. He was encouraged to be much more progressive in his approach. And it was the president himself who personally advocated, starting with uh, a proposal that was initially authored and offered by uh, one of the conservative think tanks in town, the Heritage Foundation, back in the early 90s. And it was his view that we had to start from the middle. Uh, and there were those who advised him, no, you have to start on the left and come to the middle. His view was, no, let's give Republicans every opportunity to join us. Let's do all we can to see if we can make this a bipartisan effort from the beginning. He had real hope that we could do that. Uh, but again, uh, that hope was, was ill-founded, unfortunately, because Republicans didn't want to give him that victory. The Republicans worked overtime in Congress and outside to organize against the Affordable Care Act, a.k.a. Obamacare. Violence was threatened when Obama went to New Hampshire to give a speech on his legislation. There is a man in the crowd who has a, a gun, a handgun strapped on his, on his lower leg. And I asked the chief of police about this. The chief of police says that he, he's, he's, it is legal for him to have the gun as long as it is not concealed. It's a registered weapon. And what's more, the man is on private property, a church ground there at the end of the, the roadway. And the church has apparently given him permission to be there. The man was holding a sign reading, It's time to water the tree of liberty, an allusion to something Thomas Jefferson wrote in 1787. The tree of liberty must be refreshed from time to time with the blood of patriots and tyrants. There was no threat of violence when Obama addressed a joint session of Congress a month later, just what had become customary rudeness. Congressman Joe Wilson was officially reprimanded yesterday by his fellow lawmakers for calling President Obama a liar. Nancy Cordes reports. None of us is happy to be here. This was a first for Congress, an hour-long debate over a two-word accusation ah! hurled by South Carolina Republican Joe Wilson at the president during his joint address to Congress last week. Nancy Cordes, CBS News, Capitol Hill. The late Mario Cuomo, Democratic governor of New York, once said, you campaign in poetry and govern in prose. A quarter of a century after the Republicans took over Congress, that has become, you campaign in vitriol and govern not at all. Since 1994, year zero, hyperpartisanship has deepened. Social media has become a primary tool of debate and is coupled to the now well-established world of Limbaugh and Company and Fox News. A whole generation has grown up with incivility as the norm, like journalist McKay Coppins. I was seven years old in 1994 uh, during the Republican Revolution. Um, by the time I started paying attention to politics, you know, Newt Gingrich's style of partisanship um, and kind of partisan combat had so fully permeated the political culture in America that it just seemed kind of normal to me. And 
it's funny because researching this article and really anytime I read books or watch movies about kind of past political eras in America, I'm almost kind of startled by the uh, the appeals to civility and decorum and um, this idea of kind of bipartisan institutional loyalty to Congress. It, it all just seems so far-fetched and romanticized and, and kind of fake to me because I've never known uh, known that as kind of a reality. And this era of incivility is deeply entrenched outside the halls of Congress as well, says Gavin Esler. Rush Limbaugh used to say, I am equal time. Well, you can't have equal time between someone who knows what they're talking about and someone who is just, just ranting. And he was very, very clever at using... Uh, key people in Congress using their ideas and using their vitriol to say this is what the top the top minds in our country are doing this is what the leaders are doing so it legitimized what people felt the anger that people felt it gave them permission I think is what psychologists would say but permission to do what Good morning, America. Breaking news, deadly church shooting. Tragedy in Charleston. At least nine people killed overnight. In a Good afternoon. We're coming on the air now with breaking news from Charlottesville, Virginia. That is the scene over the last 24 hours of violent clashes between white nationalists and counter-protesters in the streets of Charlottesville. And just moments ago, this shocking video we're going to show you right now. To that end, have your ID handy. It so says something about a dysfunctional government when even its own right? workers are having to line up at a soup line. kitchen. These are all American federal employees struggling to make ends meet. Many working without pay now for nearly a month. Some are furious at the humiliation of having to work for free or being ordered to stay at home. What's your message to either the president or to those on Capitol Hill? Do your damn job! Over 25 years, everything has changed, and in some ways nothing has changed. On the day this program was recorded, the American government was entering the second month of a shutdown. President Trump refused to agree a budget with the new Speaker of the House, Democrat Nancy Pelosi. The Democrats would not provide $5 billion for the president's wall along the border with Mexico. Rush Limbaugh was still in the game, telling the president not to compromise. I'm not happy to have to pass this on, but it looks like from here, right here, right now, it looks like President Trump is caving on his demand for a measly $1 billion in the budget for his wall on the border with Mexico. What had been unthinkable before the Republican takeover of the House of Representatives in 1994 has become a tactic in a never-ending, uncivil war. Republican revolutionary Vin Weber says the uncertainty of the world we live in helps keep it stoked. I think that people have a sense that change is taking place in ways that they cannot affect or control. It's a partially it's the response to globalization, um, but it's also the acceleration of technological change and changing standards in everything from entertainment to political discourse, as we've been talking about. And I think people just are grasping at anything they can to try to get some control of a world that's changing in ways that they don't understand and may, not, and may not like. Having studied the breakdown of civility leading up to the Civil War, Yale University historian Joanne Freeman is of two minds about the current state of play in America. I have a problem with the word civility because um, 
is political protest civil? I mean, if, if it was Martin Luther King being civil, you know, are people who sit on a road and block traffic, uh, you know, nowadays, let's say during the women's march, if women do that, is that civil? So the word civil to me is problematic because it suggests that everyone has to always be polite. And I don't think that's ever possibly can be true in politics. I, I think the question more has to do with, um, I don't know, what's the word? Not even comedy, but people need to both commit to the same process. But I, I think civility suggests there's an out-of-boundness that may or may not have ever been real in politics. And so now you end up with these, these conversations about, you know, how dare you yell at somebody in a restaurant? That's not civil. It's like, well, yeah, um, but there are many more extreme uncivil things that people could point to. So it, should that be out of bounds? So I don't know, is there change if everybody remains civil all the time? You know, is there positive change if everyone is civil all the time? I'm not sure. On the other hand, if the institution of government breaks down, that's a, <laughs> everything potentially breaks down. You know, that's, that's sort of the, the engine. So I, I agree that there's a difference between civil protest out in the streets and protest and, and unpleasant behavior, uncivil behavior, and inability to speak to each other even within an institution of government that relies on debate and compromise to work to, to be able to accomplish anything. The American Enterprise Institute's Norman Ornstein, a self-described raging moderate, is immoderate in his fear for the future. What we face now could be called an existential threat to our form of government and our way of life, and that uh, if tribalism continues, uh, it could lead to a kind of sectarian conflict that uh, we really don't want to see. Newt Gingrich, now 75, has allied with Donald Trump. And McKay Coppins, young enough to be Gingrich's son, says the former speaker is still preaching the message of 1994. Just recently, Gingrich wrote a book called Trump's America, uh, in which he writes um, that Trump's America and the, and the post-American society that the anti-Trump coalition represents are incapable of coexisting. These are his words. He says, one will simply defeat the other. There is no room for compromise. Trump has understood this perfectly since day one. It is nearly 40 years since Ronald Reagan's election brought the New Deal era to a close. It, too, had run for around four decades. It was brought to an end by a new generation of activists, including Vin Weber and Newt Gingrich, who weren't interested in getting along and going along. A new generation of Democrats has just been elected to the majority in the House of Representatives. Rashida Tlaib, representative from Michigan, seems every bit as up for the fight as Gingrich was in 1979. Bullies don't win. And I said, baby, they don't. Because we're going to go in there and we're going to impeach the motherfucker. Yeah! American incivility looks likely to continue for some time. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, number ten, paces, fire!